I'm Corey Astle. And I'm Kyle Simon. Welcome to Conservative Minds, a podcast about conservative ideas and thinkers. We explore what it means to call yourself a conservative, where conservatism has been, and where it's going. Each week, we select readings and conduct a discussion to share with you our investigation. Join the conversation by liking us on Facebook or following us on Twitter at Minds. That's at C-O-N-S-M-I-N-D-S. For episode 71, we read The Blue Book of the John Birch Society by Robert Welch, published in 1961. Robert Welch was born in 1899 in North Carolina. He attended the University of North Carolina, the United States Naval Academy, and Harvard Law School, but didn't graduate from the last two. Welch moved to Boston from North Carolina and eventually became successful with his brother in the candy business. He retired in 1956 and devoted himself to politics, founding the John Birch Society in 1958. He wrote several books and edited American Opinion magazine. He retired as head of the society in 1983 and died two years later at the age of 85. All right, so if we're going to take a comprehensive approach to conservative intellectual history, which is what our project is all about, we think that it's it's actually necessary to evaluate some of the more, let's call it strident or maybe non-traditional out of the mainstream thinking from conservatism over the years and in, uh, in conservative intellectual history. Mm-hmm. So you may have heard of the John Birch Society. And these days there is some reference because there's a little bit of a, an uptick in, in those who are involved to participate. They're usually called Birchers. So today we will use this, the Birch Bible, which is this blue book of the John Birch Society as a jumping off point to discuss their ideas, Robert Welch, his leadership, um, the Birch Society and what kind of how that was founded and, and their thinking. And then, you know, use that also as a jumping off point to talk about conspiracy theories and whether it's, whether that is a, a uniquely conservative disease, let's say, as the mainstream media would have you believe. Um, so, the John Birch Society, he opens up the book and, uh, and goes right to it. Our immediate and most urgent anxiety is the threat of the communist conspiracy. For the truth is simple, incontrovertible, and deadly. Unless we can reverse forces which now seem inexorable in their movement, you have only a few more years before the country in which you live will become four separate provinces in a worldwide communist dominion ruled by police state methods from the Kremlin. The communists have never wavered from Lenin's strategy of conquest in 35 years. Remember, this was written in the 60s. The best informed authorities say that there are at least 30 communist espionage rings operating in this country today against only two or three that have been exposed. Scores of known communist sympathizers have been restored by Supreme Court rulings to their former jobs within the federal government. The only thing which can possibly stop the communists is for the American people to learn the truth. You may think I'm an alarmist. Frankly, I am. Or in my opinion, based on many years of intensive study, there is ample reason for extreme alarm. I hope to make you all alarmists too. For whether you believe it or not, we are far along in a gathering crisis that is going to make us all search deeply into our beliefs and into the values and loyalties that motivate our actions. This is a worldwide battle against light and darkness, between freedom and slavery, between the spirit of Christianity and the spirit of the Antichrist for the souls and the bodies of men. So this is a speech that was given by Robert Welch in, I think, 1958, but late 50s, when he gathered a group of folks together, uh, their core uh, group who were interested in fighting communism. And this is a speech he gave. That's what the Blue Book is, is just a recording of that speech. He said, as part of the speech, the purpose of the John Birch Society will be to promote less government, more responsibility, and a better world. 
The fight against communism is the first great task. We shall use all means consistent with the faith which supplies our motivation. The threat of the communist conspiracy brought us here. Stopping the communists and breaking its grip on our government must occupy all our thinking. For unless we can win that battle, after we have been killed, our children have been enslaved, and all that we value has been destroyed. That is not an exaggeration. (laughs) Pretty heavy. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, I think it's definitely, I mean, when you look at the time, we hadn't, communism had been advancing for 40 years, just about, right? 58, that's 40 years from the Soviet Revolution. And the only place we'd finally stopped communists advancing Korea, but we hadn't rolled it back at all. So you can, there's like that, that germ of truth at the core of this. That, Absolutely. Yeah. That, you know, communism is advancing. That's no joke. And it's, and it's not outlandish to say they wanted to take over the world. They did. They thought everyone should be communist. We thought everyone should be uh, liberal democracies. You know, th- those aren't, that's not the conspiracy part, but as with a lot of conspiracies, that little germ of truth uh, grows into a whole vineyard of uh, a lot of weird connections. And, you know, he's he's seeing some things that are probably true, but he's also seeing some things like talking about the communist control of the Hawaiian Islands, you know, in the, in, in the 56, and why they shouldn't be a state because the whole place is run by communists. <laughs> that one, I hadn't heard that one before. That one was kind of wild. I mean, that turned out not to be true. He also uh, talks about the uh, Soviet atomic program, how now, I mean, it's known that they stole a lot of our research. That was the Rosenberg trial and, and all of that. Mm-hmm. But uh, Welch kind of takes it a bit farther and says that they not only stole, that's all the research they had is what they stole from us. And also they even walked out with parts yeah, and, you know, yeah. built the A-bomb out of American parts, which is, it turns out not true. They, they got their own uranium and, you know, other parts, but you know, again, it's that sort of, uh, it's only half crazy, right? It's, you know, it, and it's, and at the time we didn't know what we know today about, you know, we, the files hadn't been opened after the fall of the Soviet Union and we never knew it would fall. So, you know, if you're sitting there in 58 thinking, you know, is this ever going to stop? It, it's to a certain kind of line of thinking. It's not a hundred percent unreasonable, but it's, uh, even back then he was pretty out there. Yeah. I grew up with a lot of this stuff. To be to be honest, I I think that it was is very much in the in the bloodstream of where I grew up, and you know, kind of the fear of of communist advance, and especially the atheistic, like godless aspect of communism. You know, and this is sort of like de- demons on earth, and they're they're advancing, and mm-hmm. and, uh, and they're going to take away our our rights and our liberty and our religion. I think you're exactly right. If you if you listen to some of them talk, you know, you're that that's what they say they want to do, <laughs> but, <Yeah. laughs> but you know, it, it does seem like when, when the enemy has, has set uh, his sights on us, like it's far more dangerous than when we make decisions because he's always much more efficient and much more dedicated than, you know, than we are. But I mean, he raises, uh, uh some really, I, I would say very core con- conservative thinking. And this is what, this is what makes it a little bit frustrating because you're, I, I think you're exactly right. You read through this and you're like, well, you're making a little, you're making t- too many connections and make, mm-hmm. you know, making, going a little bit too far. But, but a lot of this stuff, I think the reason, you know, the mainstream media has no problem like labeling all conservatives, a bunch of conspiracy theorists is because like a lot of this, I agree with here's, here's kind of their manifesto here. Some degree of government is necessary in any civilized society. 
While government is necessary, it is basically a non-productive expense supported by the productive economy. No, no, yeah. no disagreement there. Uh, they say government is frequently evil. Maybe that's too far. There's a greater temptation to criminality on the part of those who control or influence the police power. Now, yeah, I think you, uh, the folks on the fringe and definitely on the left would <laughs> believe that there's all kinds of the Wall Street cabal and mm. you know, big corporations have the, you know, the world uh, at their fingertips. And so maybe that's a little too far. But he says government is always inevitably an enemy of individual freedom. Maybe that's over overstated, but you know we generally agree with that. What yeah. whatever must be done by government will always cost more than if it could be done by individuals or smaller groups. And the larger the government, the more disproportionate the cost. I mean, yeah, a lot of this is just kind mm-hmm. of mainstream uh, conservative thinking. Yeah, and some of his predictions too. Um, I mean, what's it's interesting is he seems to be against the military buildup of the Cold War, in a way, because he says it's going to lead to bigger government and higher taxes, inflation price and wage controls and increased control over our lives. And by the seventies, that was all true. <laughs> right. I mean, there were price and wage controls. There was crazy inflation and, you know, we went off the gold standard, which uh, he didn't even mention that, but that, that caused a lot of that. And then he predicts, you know, what will happen later, greater federal control over education. Well, that happened. Yeah. yeah. A constant emphasis on peace. Kind of, not really. But then finally, the piecemeal surrender of the rest of the free world and of the United States itself to Kremlin ruled tyranny. That one didn't happen, <laughs> but, but a lot of the other stuff he talked about, you know, it's, it's, um, it's, you know, sometimes a slippery slope is true, but sometimes it, you're slipping too far in the, uh, you know, the parade of horribles you're imagining is going to happen. And I think also in a lot of conspiracy theories, and you get this here, we get, we attribute to the enemy this superhuman quality, you know, like right, that right. every communist is just sitting around thinking, how am I going to take over America? You know, just thinking about it all day, bending all of their efforts to it. They're not, they're not going to concerts and, you know, painting pictures and having a good time and, you know, watching TV. They're just thinking about world conquest. And that's, yeah, right. of course, that's not true, right? They're, they're regular folks too. They're just, you know, wrong about a certain issue. And I think that's the thing. Like a guy like this is seeing, communism advance all over the world he, he would not have predicted like most people didn't predict that by 89 the wall would come down by 92 the ussr would be no more and not even because of war just because of the internal contradictions of their system and you know that just the, the triumph of our you know cold war efforts under reagan and and, and others so it's um he's definitely got that under siege kind of mentality and understandable but it once you get in that sort of frame of thought, I think you, you miss things about how you know the enemy has weaknesses too, and right. it's not all it's not all as bad as you think. <laughs> right, right, yeah. Well, we wallow in our uh, decadence. They they right. spend all day like pouring over maps and. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, uh, all right, so let's get a little more on the John Birch Society. It was established, he says, and uh, it was established in Indianapolis, Indiana, in 1958 by a group of twelve led by Robert Welch Jr., who you gave us the bio of him. And he's he made his fortune in the candy uh, industry. And he's the his company is the, the manufacturer of the Sugar Daddy. I don't know if they have those anymore, but certainly I remember when I was I was younger. So it's like caramel. Yeah, I, I, yeah I remember those. Just again for Halloween. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So another founding member was uh, Fred Koch. So let the conspiracy theorists <laughs> on the left go wild over this. Uh, Fred Koch, who's the founder of Koch Industries and obviously the father of the, the infamous Koch brothers. 
John Birch, who's that? Well, this is what this is how he's described by by uh, by Welch. John Birch, a young fundamentalist Baptist preacher from Macon, Georgia, who did as much as any other one man to win our war and the Chinese war against the Japanese in China, was murdered by the Chinese communists. So he was a he was a Baptist preacher. He went over to fight during the war, and he was killed by by Chinese communists. Again, he's described by Welch as John Birch possessed in his own character all of those noble traits and ideals which we should like to see become symbolized by the John Birch Society. Now, I've read in other places that uh, that John Birch himself may or may not have approved of of all this, but uh, that's kind of neither here nor there. It's called John Birch Society, just named after this guy who is a who's who Welch viewed as a patriot. But Robert Welch himself was was kind of the the ringleader and very much mastermind of of all this. So the structure this is this is really interesting because as we talk about you know our the the vision that we always have of the enemy of being so organized and so efficient and and so uh, dedicated to a single cause, he he takes that up. So in this speech, he says the John Birch Society is to be a monolithic body operating under completely authoritative control at all levels for the building of morale and loyalty and a feeling of unified purpose and closely knit strength, as well as effective functioning in periods of crisis. The John Birch Society will function almost entirely through local chapters, usually 10 to 20 patriots. Each chapter will have a chapter leader appointed by headquarters. Then he has dues, $24 a year for men, $12 a year for women. The chapter leader will get all of his or her members together at least once per month. We expect practically continuous contact between chapter leaders and members to pass on or receive information and carry out various concerted efforts as requested by headquarters. They're going to have paid staff with title uh, with the title of coordinator for each area, and above coordinators we have supervisors with the rank of major coordinator. We shall build the framework from the bottom up to keep strict and careful control on what every chapter is doing. So, I mean, even like you and I are kind of giggling a little bit at the ideas because you're kind of like, well, that that's true, but you know, maybe that's a little bit too far, but then. I think what separates maybe a group like this is they build a, a militant structure to actually like what he views as mirror the the enemy. But I mean, really, it's it's a form of conformism and and potentially thought control that I I think is what makes us uncomfortable reading some of this stuff. <laughs> yeah, and it it definitely plays into that idea that I mean, we even see it in between the two parties in this country, where the other one always thinks that the enemy. Part, the other party, the opposite party, whatever you want to call it, is, well, they're single-minded in their pursuit. They don't compromise. We compromise constantly. Yeah, yeah. I, I hear Democrats say this. I hear Republicans say this. They each For one, sure. each one thinks the other party is super hardcore, never compromises. You know, and that's, it's it's funny. You know, but he's yeah. Here he said, we have adopt the enemy's tactics. We can't be soft like we usually are. And that, yeah, that's <laughs> we we do that in our own domestic politics all the time. I, I, I don't know. I was. I kind of laugh when I hear it now. It's because it's, yeah, it's it's not true in either case. But um, yeah, he's so this one line that struck me as he says about communism being everywhere. The octopus is so large that its tentacles now reach into the all of the legislative halls, all of the union labor meetings, a majority of the religious gatherings, and most of the schools of the whole world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's a problem is there were communist spy rings in America. That was, right. I mean, that was true, you know, right, but, right, right. but, um, this kind of stuff, I think like McCarthy, 
when you go so over the top, it discredits, it give it gives aid to those who say, I ah, don't worry about any of it. You know, it's, they're not, they're not doing anything. It's not a big deal. You know, I mean, it's, it's hard to be moderate on a thing like this, you know, but. You fast forward to today and it's sort of like we have sort of the same feelings, you know, that there is, it's not so much a conspiracy, but it's definitely the case that you have some of the biggest cultural institutions in America are rowing in a single direction. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, maybe, maybe a guy like Welch would, would draw dotted solid or dotted lines between each one of these. But, you know, you have, you have a a mainstream media, you have a Hollywood, you have the the Academy, you have like those who are in, in, in powerful places for like federal education and Mm -hmm. pushing certain curricula or whatever. And so, like you say, I mean, then you're kind of, it's, it's a, it's an easy defense tactic for, for the other side to sort of say, oh, you think that everything's a conspiracy theory when it's kind of like, well, okay, there's not uh, we're not drawing a line between, between you and some grandmaster, but it yeah. is the case that you guys are still are rowing in the same direction though. Yeah. yeah people are, are often, I think it's just because of who they associate with and you self-isolate and you, you only hang out with people who agree with you. Then you know you start to all say the same thing. Yeah. I don't, I don't think that all the corporate heads and all the philosophy professors and all the critical race theorists are all getting together and, you know, handing out, you know, they're all not watching the same PowerPoint or whatever, but, uh, you know, they, yeah, it's, it's easy to think that because it all, if all you see is everybody saying the same thing, you say, well, they must be on the same page for a reason. They must be literally coming out of the same book, you know? Yeah. I've seen it sometimes in the things I write, people, will tell me that I, I mean, I've been accused of being paid by various campaigns to write such a thing. Back in 16, they, somebody told me in the the comments section that was, I was obviously a paid agent of Hillary Clinton. (laughs) I was like, boy, the check hasn't got here yet. I don't know. (laughs) Well, tell her to pay up. (laughs) Yeah. Jeez. If I'm doing her dirty work, I might as well get paid for it. But that's, I think that's also the thing is you, when you, when you see the other side is so bad, you can't imagine that anyone's doing it honestly, that it's just honest disagreement or nuanced disagreement. Even it's just, well, only somebody who has something to gain, you know, it's only some sort of corrupt influence could possibly, you know, steer somebody in this direction. And that's, I think when he's, when he's talking about how a lot of mainstream Protestantism in his day was turning towards the social gospel, as he calls it. And I think that's actually what they called it, you know, and away from, tradition and uh, scripture alone he sees that as, as communist influence but i i think it's just wrong you know i think it's just guys who believe differently than i do you know yeah and, but it, but i get it i mean it's uh, that's the, the thing as a, as a conspiracy theory it's not unbelievable it's just a little well it's a little unbelievable mm-hmm. so then it drives this kind of bunker mentality where it's like well we don't know who to trust and you're kind of looking around and of course, if you get even more paranoid, then you're you're worrying about infiltration or whatever. And he has this. I thought was this is worth reading because it is it is pretty striking. His uh, kind of kind of his loyalty pledge. He says we are not going to have factions developing on the two sides to every question theme. Now that hits a little bit close to home right now <laughs> with with some uh, with some Trump supporters. I mean, let's be honest. Mm-hmm. But he says those members who cease to feel the necessary degree of loyalty can either resign or will be put out before they build up any splinter following of their own inside the society. We can allow for differences of opinion. We shall need and welcome advice, 
But whenever differences of opinion become translated into a lack of loyal support, we shall we shall have shortcuts for eliminating both without going through any so-called democratic process. Otherwise, communist infiltrators could bog us down in interminable disagreements, schisms, and feuds before we ever ser- become seriously affected. You know, I mean, obviously that sounds like any uh, totalitarian, authoritarian, whether on the right or left. Mm-hmm. I mean, it reads to me a, a whole lot like when when we read when we read uh, Whitaker Chambers his his account of you know, witness his account of of being part of the uh, communist um, cell. Mm-hmm. I mean, and and so what Welch is trying to say is like, well, they're doing this and they're just as dedicated, so we need to too, and we can't you know we can't uh, we can't really abide any real dissenting opinions and man we see that all over the political spectrum now i mean the supposed chinese communists are just as authoritarian and when it comes to critical race theory i mean don't you dare step out of line and and like i said i think i think it hits pretty close to home with with some of the stuff that's happened with trump i mean i think i think people are going too far uh, with their with the loyalty pledge no the stuff you saw in the last couple of weeks of the administration. Yeah. It was, it was all that, you know, it was stuff that, you know, saying that Mike Pence is a traitor and all this. It, it, yeah. It, it clearly goes too far. And it's a lot like, see, you know, this book Welch presents probably the best view of the John Birch society. His other book, the politician, which was about Dwight Eisenhower is the one that I think kind of put him too far outside the conservative mainstream. Cause in, in that book, he said that Eisenhower is, quote, a mere stooge or that he is a communist assigned the specific job of being a political front man. And this was when Eisenhower was president and, yeah. you know, leading, you know, I mean, it it's insane to say that Dwight Eisenhower was a communist. That's that's too far, you know, <laughs> to say yeah, the same thing, like like saying that, that Mike Pence is not a uh, a conservative. Right, right. The man the man fully reeks of conservatism. There's nothing else about him, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's there's definitely parallels there where it's it starts out as a a conspiracy of of others, you know, and then it's well they're also, you know, infiltrating us. And then they're infiltrating people who it's really unbelievable to believe are being infiltrated. Yeah. I mean, in yeah. this book he also says that Nelson Rockefeller is dedicated to making the United States part of a one-world socialist government. <laughs> I mean, I don't know how Rockefeller is a communist, but, you know, it's, there you go. And so you also had at the time Eisenhower's agri- secretary of agriculture, Ezra Taft Benson, was also very much, uh, he was a close friend of, of Welch and a strong, strong adherent to uh, the John Birch Society. And, and later it was after, I believe it was after Eisenhower was uh, out of office already, but uh, even uh, Secretary Benson said that that uh, Eisenhower was um, suspect uh, as a communist. So it was, I don't, it was pretty widespread. So you weren't, you weren't just talking about it, you know, a very, a tiny group, but you know, a decent sized group. But I did want to read this because this also still was striking about his, uh, he's, he's referring to the dedication required. You have two alternatives come into the John Birch society and devote to its purposes, the best and most you have to offer with money and head and heart and hands. Or in a very few years, you will be forced to devote all to the maintenance of a communist slave state. So we are asking for a lot. Our determination to overthrow and entrench tyranny is the very stuff out of which revolutions are made. If you are thinking of halfway measures, we might as well quit now. 
So I think what really jumps out to me about that is it does cause my eyes to widen, but it also, it speaks to what I think a kind of a, a, a piece of human nature, which is like, everyone wants to be a part of something big. Everyone wants to be a part of something more, you know, they want to feel like they're on the inside. They want to feel like they're part of the, you know, a special elite crew, you know, whatever that might be. And that, uh, and that, and that you've been chosen in some way and, and, uh, your, your life has purpose and meaning and you play this bigger role. And you and I have talked about this for every, the last podcast and many other podcasts, like people want to feel like they, they belong, that they have a role and they, and that they have meaning. And this provides this type of stuff, like really provides serious purpose and meaning to a person's life. And, and, uh, I think, I mean, I, I don't want to just make a direct analogy, but I mean, but you also see some other more extremists, even much crazier. I mean, these guys were not violent at all. I mean, they were just, mm-hmm. but you could see like terrorists or whatever who want to fight for a law or whatever, you know, something bigger, something broader, something more important than, than whatever's happening in their own lives. So. Their actual nonviolence really struck me too, because after this big windup about how communism is everywhere and it's, it's coming for us and we have to fight it, his solutions are like, establish anti-communist reading rooms yeah right (laughs) oh oh yeah that's not unreasonable yeah (laughs) conservative magazines and radio and speaker events letter writing campaigns and petitions yeah that's all that's all it's like a real advocacy campaign a contemporary advocacy campaign no different yeah that's like oh yeah that's fine (laughs) you should do that that's you know it's it's it was kind of a and maybe it's just because we live in an age where terrorism is more common I was, you know, I was waiting for something a little wild, and instead it was like, you know, basic uh, local democracy stuff. I'm like, no, oh, well, that's yeah, that's actually kind of heartening. <laughs> I mean, sure, write letters. There's nothing wrong yeah. with that, <laughs> right? So, as part of this, we also we read the that infamous um, essay by liberal uh, sociologist, political scientist uh, Richard Hofstetter, called "The Paranoid Style in American Politics." You may have read read this before in the in in the past. I, be, I believe I had, uh, but I had forgotten about it. But we, you know, we had a little bit of trepidation reading this because it is, you know, here here is like a a, a lefty who's going to give uh, who's going to lecture us on on what's wrong with the right. But frankly, like as we go through this a little bit, I think maybe there is a little bit more of this on the right, but there is plenty on the left, and we'll give some examples. Yeah, <laughs> just a minute. Yeah, so Hofstetter's point was, I mean, I think it was specifically in, in response to Birchers and others like them. Um, he wrote this in 1964 um, and basically goes through the historical uh, incidents of paranoid-type thinking in American politics. And it's it's been around. There was a, If you ever hear about the anti-Mason party, there was a whole party built up the, around the idea that, the, uh, that Masonic lodges were a secret society trying to take over America. With, you know, horrible abuses and, you know, secret rituals and things like that. Uh, Anti-Catholicism around the same time had a lot of similar things. You know, it was this foreign influence. You know, there weren't a lot of Catholics here at the time. So when Catholic immigrants came over, they were viewed as sort of uh, suspicious and whatnot. And that that carries over. He talks about the populist movement of the uh, late 1800s early 1900s is also having that sort of like anti-wall street conspiracy sort of thing but really the, the essay focuses most on the modern right winger and uh he says that 
I mean, modern as, you know, in his time, 1964, that conspiracists before that were sort of feeling a threat to their way of life that they wanted to head off. They didn't understand where it was coming from. But he's, the way he paints the Birchers is that they have lost something already. That is, mm-hmm. I guess, old style America. Uh, and they're trying to get it back. That's, I mean, you see that sort of thing levied against modern Republicans too, or even Trump or not Trump, just sort of, you know, you, you hear that as something they say to us, you know, oh, you guys just want to go back to the 50s or something. You know, it's, well, in a few ways, probably. Yeah. I mean, that's that sort of backward looking conspiracy is the way Hofstadter sort of criticizes all conspiracists. And the one thing I, I think he's right about here is that conspiracists are always at the turning point. Yeah. And that, that's yeah. kind of like what you were saying. Everybody wants to feel important. We, we always want to feel like our own time is super important. Like this, yeah. everything that came before, you know, it was all right. But right now, if we don't act, everything will be washed away and there's no coming back. I mean, you hear that with the global warming types too. It's always like, we've got 18 months or else this whole world's going to cook. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. then 18 months go by and it's always like, well, now we've got eight months. And you know, it's, it's, there's always, a, they always reset the clock. It's never... The last one, when when uh, when AOC and them were talking about how we had 18 months to save the world, I was like, well, sweet. At least we could stop talking about this in a year and a half. <laughs> nope. But no. <laughs> no. There's always a new timeline, you know. And But that is, that's that is I think, something you see in every sort of extremist or conspiracist. It's like, this, this is the time. Everything yeah, right is now time. is important. Yeah. Nothing else was. He says, he is always manning the barricades of civilization. <laughs> Mm-hmm. constantly at a turning point yeah he describes the modern right he said uh, his modern right in the 60s but you know whatever we'll say today the modern right wing feels dispossessed america has been largely taken away from them and their kind though they are determined to try to repossess it and to prevent the final destructive act of subversion the old american virtues have already been eaten away by cosmopolitans and intellectuals the old competitive capitalism has been gradually undermined by socialistic and communist schemers the old national security and independence have been destroyed by treasonous plots. Now I read through this and I, I, I have two takeaways. The first is like, well, it's kind of true. I mean, mm-hmm. more than a kind of, I mean, you have this, the old American virtues have been eaten away by cosmopolitans and intellectuals. I think that's a hundred percent true. I, I don't even yep. know if there, there's any realistic like argument against that. And, uh, and that, uh, the old competitive capitalism, you know, for better or worse, is very different now. I mean, we have, we, we live in a welfare state and I don't, I don't see how you could really argue against that either, but that's the one first takeaway. Another takeaway is that he says they feel dispossessed and uh, America is, you know, largely taken away from them or something like that. I think we saw this past year in 2020, maybe, you know, one of the worst years in, in American history, but we saw, we, I think we saw a primal scream from, from, folks on both sides of the political aisle who feel dispossessed, who feel like they've been left behind. I mean, I think that the, the BLM rallies, uh, same as uh, a lot of the uh, Trump rallies that we t- talked about in our, our last episode. I mean, that's not a right wing thing, right? I mean, yeah. I think, I think uh, the 99 percenters and, and setting up a, a whole new civilization or society in a park in Seattle or in a patch of grass Mm-hmm. in dc or in new york and trying to set up set up an entirely new civilization where you have your own little library and your own you, you barter goods with other people mm-hmm. like the like the the 99 i mean so this is these are examples uh that i think are maybe this is what they were dealing with of course this is what they were dealing with in the 60s and maybe we're just dealing with it again but i don't think that's a right-wing thing at all 
No, I think that's right. And it's, I mean, maybe it was more at the time because the left wing was, was newer, you know, I mean, what they were into was a, they hadn't really won before, I think. So I think as tide was sort of turning towards the counterculture in the mid sixties, it might've been disorienting for right wingers for the first time. There had always been among elites and, you know, cosmopolitans and intellectuals, like he says, but those people had often been able to live out countercultural lives because they were rich enough and protected enough, but most folks weren't. So I I think by the sixties is is when you first see that as a mass culture. And part of it's because it it amused me that Hofstra said mass media makes transmission of these theories easier. (laughs) You don't know the half of it. (laughs) Wait wait till that internet comes around. It's going to get a lot crazier, but yeah, I think it's that. I think that, that in those days, you know, you could, as mainstream media was getting more accepting of what the, the kids were into and hippies and such, you know, it was, I, I think it was beamed into Americans living rooms in a way it never was before, you know, whereas, you know, some beatniks might've been at a, you know, a jazz club in New York doing weird poetry and nobody knew about it except them, yeah. you know, and it, it wasn't bothering anybody. It was just, you know, a bunch of guys who were doing something different and, you know, uh, they were a counterculture. They were a really a small diversion, a small departure from mainstream Western culture. But now it's on TV. They're in the streets. The music is different. Everything's different. And uh, that's disorienting for sure. So I th- I think that's the, the first time you saw that as a mass effect. Yeah. And so to, to go a little bit further, he says, uh, the paranoid, meaning the paranoid person or whatever, the conspiracy theorist is a militant leader. He does not see social conflict as something to be mediated and compromised in the manner of the working politician. Now, give me a break. Do we think that's like a right wing thing? That is, that is alive and well on both sides. Since what is at stake is always a conflict between absolute good and absolute evil. What is necessary is not compromise, but the will to fight things out to a finish. Now, I, I won't relate exactly what the details were, but I got, I got, we got emails this week, my wife and I, from, let's say, both sides of the aisle, and just incredibly hysterical, both of them, uh, but, but in very different, you know, like very mirror images of each other, <laughs> and we're like, oh my gosh, you know, this is it. He says, since the enemy is of a thought of is thought of as being totally evil and totally unappeasable, he must be totally eliminated. Perhaps the, the later he says that perhaps the central situation conducive to the diffusion of the paranoid tendency is a confrontation of opposed interests which are or are felt to be totally irreconcilable. The situation becomes worse when the representatives of a particular social interest are shut out of the p- political process. Having no access to political bargaining or the making of decisions, they find their original conception that the world of power is sinister and malicious fully confirmed. Now, I'll be the first to say that that is absolutely alive and well in some pockets of the right. It is absolutely alive and well in some pockets of the left as well. I think that's right. I think that's people talk about horseshoe theory and, you know, left and the right meeting, you know, on the extremes. That's for sure. You see a lot of the same talk from both sides and the same tactics from both sides now. I mean, I don't know. I think part of it is part of it's the craziness of this year. Everybody feeling constricted in a million ways that have nothing to do with politics and just wanting to explode already. And then you bring a presidential election into it and everything else. And yeah, it fuels a lot of conspiracy theories. 
Yeah, and obviously we're dealing with some, and I, I really dismissed this whole uh, QAnon phenomenon. I, I don't know anybody who's even talked about it, let alone adheres to it, but apparently there are some people, and apparently they're they're strident enough to do something about it. So we, I think we have to come to grips with the fact that on the right, there's definitely some of this stuff going on. You know, I think there are f- folks who are white nationalists. I, I still have a hard time believing it's more than just a sliver of a sliver, but, uh, you know, mm-hmm. maybe I'm wrong. Could be wrong. I don't know anybody who's like that in, in, even remotely, but, yeah. uh, it's, it's breaking its way into the mainstream and, and it did in a very real way on January 6th. So saying the next article that we looked at was a, a short piece that was in the Washington post in 2014 that addressed <clears throat> sort of the, the same contention that people had been making since Hofstadter's 64 article, which was, you know, this is something on the right left wingers. We don't get involved with this, but the right wing, they're crazy. And, uh, these three, uh, political science, let's see, um, researchers, uh, Alfred Moore, Joseph Parent, and Joseph Yushinsky wrote about conspiracy theories being not just for the conservatives. And they've got some data to back it up. And I thought it was illuminating. And this is, this is 2014. So this is before Trump stuff got into the conversation. This is, you know, even before all that, he says, the authors say that in 2012, 37% of Democrats believed that Bush had cheated to win in 2004. And 36% of Republicans said Obama cheated to win in 2008. It's basically the same number. And they're both wrong. That's crazy. You know, I mean, but I remember, you know, when these votes were being challenged in the electoral count this time, a lot of people were talking about 2004 when they challenged the Ohio votes, where Bush won that state by more than 100,000. But there were still a lot of people swearing up and down that he somehow stole it. You know, I guess just because coming out of 2000 they figured there was going to be another weird election like that and it wasn't everybody every state was pretty evenly uh you know they, the ones who won it won it convincingly but you know when you look when you i i think it's the same sort of thing when you like, i don't know anybody who would have voted for bush so they must have stolen it i don't right, know anybody right. who voted for obama they must have stolen it you know? right right and it's also you know he talked about roughly equal numbers of 9-11 truthers and uh and birthers on left and right you know these things are not restricted to one side of the aisle or the other and these are people admitting this in uh surveys too yeah, you know yeah. it was, you know this wasn't like these guys were going into dark corners of the internet these were people being asked by regular folks hey do you believe uh 9-11 was an inside job and a, a bunch of them said yeah and <laughs> that's that's wild to me yeah um, well and i think for our part we i i'll speak for myself i mean i think that uh it's clear that some of these are, you know, conspiracy theories on our, on our, on our side and Biden won the election. You know, mm-hmm. listener, I'm sorry if, if you disagree with that, but he just did. He had more votes and it wasn't really even close, you know, and we have these, I, I think these issues that, that crop up on, on both sides, but on our side, because we get frustrated because we don't want to lose. But, uh, but rec- I think we need, I do need, I think we do need to recognize that that there are problems on our side, but I did sit down and, you know, somebody challenged me and said, well, okay, let's hear a left-wing conspiracy. And, and, and I, and I, in, in 10 minutes wrote down about 50 things, but here's a few, you know, mm-hmm. Trump is a Russian agent, you know, Russia has compromising inf- information about Trump, including video that showed him peeing on two prostitutes on a bed. You know, Trump won't release his tax returns because it shows he's hugely indebted to Putin. You know, Russia orchestrated Trump's victory in 2016 using bots and troll farms. You know, the, the CIA 
introduced crack cocaine into California to kill black people. Trump faked his COVID infection to avoid the debates. Bush lied about WMD as a pretext for war. Bush took America to war in Iraq to enrich Halliburton and other energy companies. You know, I think the, the New York Times 1619 project is, is myth-making, you know, conspiracy. Mm -hmm. But maybe one of my favorites all time is the Bush administration revealed Valerie Plame's secret CIA identity to cover up for a failed intelligence operation to find yellow cake uranium in Niger. You know, and, and this was on... This was on mainstream media and left-wing news for months and months and months. I mean, they really thought they were Woodward and Bernstein and having figured <laughs> something out. And it was a total, complete sham. Just yeah. <laughs> So anyway, there's just a few. You know, genetically modified food is unhealthy. Of course yeah, it's not. Nuclear no. power is deadly. You know, like, no, that's the only way we're going to deal with climate change. So anyway, those are just a few of, you know, they have them on their side. It's very clear. Maybe we do have a little bit more of a problem on our side. We've had it in the in the past with the John Birchers, you know, Bill Buckley, uh, obviously the godfather of con of contemporary conservatism. You know, he he went to great extents to try to expel the Birchers from the Republican Party. I mean, he called them kooks, said they had no common sense, and uh, he 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 worked to get them booted and and expel them and push them to the to the fringe in order to make a Republican conservative um, um, party, a, a mainstream party. And, and of course it kind of did work, but you know, maybe some of that is back on the March and, uh, and we need to reevaluate and maybe it's, maybe it's time maybe we need another Buckley to, to help kind of guide the way to, to the next chapter of conservatism. I, I think that's, that's right. And, you know, and, and the left needs it too. I mean, I, I grew up in Philadelphia and I knew a lot of left wing people. And if I, I can't tell you how many times I heard people say, seriously that there was a there was a way to run a car on water but the oil companies suppress the knowledge so <laughs> they could keep selling gasoline people believe this like yeah, yeah as yeah. if it were possible as if you know <laughs> you can't that's the thing about conspiracies too it's like you, you you really depend on a lot of people to be really secret about stuff and i think we've seen on the internet that a lot of people like to talk people are always telling secrets oh, people wow. are always oversharing there's not a lot of undersharing, but I mean, there are so many of them. A lot of the ones you named, I, I had to laugh because you've heard them all. Yeah. We don't talk about how much of a conspiracy theory the Russia thing is because it's crazy. I mean, <laughs> and also like that, that it was going to be on his tax returns. Like there was going to be a line item that said, yeah, <laughs> is that Putin? Have you ever, you ever Putin, seen 300,000? <laughs> so these people ever filled out a tax return? It's not, that's not how that works. <laughs> when you get bribed, you don't pay taxes on it. I mean, that's, that's one thing, but yeah, they're all, there's a lot of that nuttiness on their side, but yeah, we, we can't just look at them. We have to look at it. I mean, when you look at what happened in the Capitol riots, a lot of those people believed some stuff that was really out there and that's why they did what they did because like you said, they were, they were thought they were on the barricades. You know, they, they had yeah. themselves convinced they were, there was a conspiracy to steal this thing. And you know, there's people were spurring them on and it's, it's something we have to, yeah, we need another, I, would, I think we definitely need another Buckley, but so do the Democrats. All right. Well, that's all the time we have. So <laughs> this is a conversation we want to continue to have. And I think we will continue to, to read some books that are maybe outside of the mainstream and a little uh, non-traditional just so that we can have a comprehensive view. Cause I think it's important. I think it's important for us to talk about this stuff openly and be honest. So, all right. That's Welch. Catch us next time.